Well, we turn to chapter 9, and it's set in the context of the whole region of Galilee. And Galilee is buzzing with the impact of Jesus. We read in chapter 4, if you turn to that, in verse 23 and following, that Jesus went throughout Galilee, and the news about him spread like wildfire through Syria, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the other side of the Jordan. The people from all these places were following him. Some were walking miles to, to catch up with the crowd of followers, just to see Jesus, to see him. And many brought with them their ill friends and family. The news was awe-inspiring. People were bringing people with all kinds of diseases, ailments, mental, emotional, physical. And we read in chapter 4 and verse 24, he healed them. There must have been other healers about, but this Jesus was different. He stood out as one who had authority. We've already been thinking about this as we've been looking through chapter 8. But you see, many of them had already heard Jesus teach. Remember Matthew chapter 5 to 7, where we have recorded the Sermon on the Mount. And what was the conclusion, having been taught by Jesus? Well, we read in chapter 7 and verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed by, at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In chapter 8 of Matthew's narrative, we, we read some of the, the specifics. Jesus cleanses, cleanses the man suffering of leprosy. He goes away healed. Then the centurion goes home to find a servant healed. Jesus gets to Peter's house, and in an instant, he touches Peter's mother-in-law on the hand, and her fever left her. It goes. He reaches the region of the Gadarenes, where there are two madmen, victims of demons, and he exercises authority over demons. He cries to them to go, and the pigs suffer. And then on the lake, remember, he said, the word and the winds and the waves obeyed, they go. What was going to be next? Well, we turn to chapter 9. And this is one of the, the healing stories I remember most. But in chapter 9, there is an element of the story missing for me. The story is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. But Matthew excludes the very, I think, memorable bit, the bit we remember from childhood, that there was no room in the house for the paralyzed man, and so his four friends dig through the roof and lower him in the view of Jesus and the crowd crammed into the house. We don't have the dramatic bit of the commotion on the roof and the, the falling in of the bits of thatch and mud and reeds onto the head of the audience 
and onto Jesus' shoulders. We don't have the the record of the, the clumsy lowering of a man on a suspended mat into the room below. There were, there were four men, according to Mark. I suppose one supporting each corner of the mat. And Jesus saw their faith, we read. Now that must have been faith that impressed Jesus. So first of all in this story, as we see it in Matthew, we see the men expecting healing. These men who were carrying the makeshift stretcher and the disabled man himself had heard all the reports. Jesus was healing paralyzed people so he can heal these men's friend. They heard that Jesus had arrived in Capernaum by boat. He was in a well-known house, possibly Peter's house. And although slow of getting there, they were convinced that Jesus could do something about their companion's ability to walk. And Jesus saw their faith. Now, there may have been four men. Matthew doesn't count them. But I always think there is a message for us as we consider the sincerity and the conviction of the friends of this suffering man. And I like to to think of them as men or women of faith who bring to Jesus those who are ill. They are interceders. And this is a discipleship commitment we are to practice, I believe, to pray for those who are ill, to intercede, to bring them to God for healing to intercede in prayer. And this, I believe, is something we are to be committed to. And this is a a ministry of the church to pray for all who are ill, to carry the ill person to Christ, just like these men in the story, like the four men, to expect Jesus to do something about it. Now, Christ's answer might not always be immediate physical healing, but there's often emotional transformation and spiritual healing. The friend who knows you are praying for their healing is comforted. Now, secondly, in this story, we see the audience is bewildered. The paralyzed man (coughs) was brought so that there would be visible change, not invisible change. The immediate response of Jesus wasn't what they expected. They expected to hear Jesus say the word uh, and the man would be healed. They expected some action by Jesus, maybe even some kind of dramatic display of his ability to heal. But Jesus says, take heart or cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. This man hadn't come to repent of sin. He came to be healed. 
This wasn't what they imagined. But why was the man paralyzed? How long had he been disabled? What had caused his terrible suffering? He was reliant on his friends for too long. He wanted delivered from his uh, limitations. Was there a hint here that he that it was sin in his life that caused his paralysis? It was believed that a person's illness could have some correlation with sin. But it was also refuted. For example, in John chapter 9, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and Jesus refused to explain it was because of the sin of his parents that he was, the man was blind from birth. It may happen that sin in someone's life, a sin that has never been addressed, could have some bearing on an illness. But we don't recognize illness, though, as punitive. There was no suggestion that there was a correlation between the man not walking and the sin. But there is the truth here that there was underlying sin, the invisible. Because, you see, sin is the problem for all, for this man and for all men and women. It wasn't that Jesus was all concerned about the man's physical condition, but he was concerned about the man's need, the man's need for forgiveness. The man came for healing. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And surely this is saying something to us. There's nothing more important than our relationship with God. Nothing more important than that relationship. And dealing with sin that separates us from God, that stands between us and God. There's nothing more important than our need for forgiveness. Sin is our greatest predicament. And it seems today that, you know, that sin is no longer a great burden in the, in the world that we live. <clears throat> People are able to set their own level of morality, and it can explain many a sin away. Is there such a thing as right and wrong? Sometimes we ask. What is truth? What is proper behavior? All kinds of actions can be justified. And even at times, the church seems confused over what is sin and what should be upheld. We don't know what the, the paralyzed man's sins were, what kind of moral life he led, what obsessions he had, how he treated people, how he treated his wife if he was married, how he treated his money, how he paid his taxes. <clears throat> Were there sexual sins? What was his idol? What did he put before God? 
how hypocritical he was as a Jew, how truthful he was, how manipulative he was, how unpredictable he was, how vicious he was in his speech or in his actions. We don't know. He might have been sympathetic towards Jesus, and we see this in the story, and willing to accept the good news that he was hearing, that was, that was being told, but he needed forgiveness of the sinful life he lived. Jesus saw his need for forgiveness. His life was be, to be transformed first and foremost through the forgiveness of his sins. <clears throat> I trust you don't deny you need your need for forgiveness. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There can be many of us sympathetic towards the gospel, but have never surrendered our lives to God's forgiveness. We can come to Jesus today and he forgives our sins. Jesus wants to take our sins and wrap them up and send them away, as far away where they can be forgotten. It's amazing, in this story of forgiveness, Jesus welcomes the man as he is, just as he is. And this is grace. He doesn't create any obstacles. He hasn't told him he has anything to do. He hasn't laid down any conditions. He welcomes the man because he has come. And we can have forgiveness through honest trust in Jesus who offers us forgiveness. Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. He has taken all our sins upon himself. He has covered our sins with his blood and has paid the debt and taken on himself the guilt we carry. He welcomes us to come for forgiveness. We also see in this story, <clears throat> thirdly, the teachers of the law are confused or confounded. The crowd was confused, and the teachers of the law were skeptical and judgmental. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. Who does this man Jesus think he is? God. Does he think he's God? They saw Jesus as dishonoring God by his claim to forgive sins. He was blaspheming. And according to the Old Testament, the penalty for blasphemy was death. See, those who represented the religious establishment here opposed Jesus. Those who you think might be supporting him are against him. They were being challenged by the behavior of the Nazarene, who was attracting big crowds. Their authority centered in the temple <clears throat> was being undermined. They 
taught only God forgives sins. And so we see here that this, this is the beginning of it in Matthew's gospel, the beginning of a campaign against Jesus of sniping at him, attacking him. They weren't prepared to accept Jesus was the son of God. And I'm not, it's not surprising Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew by their sneers. Contempt was written all over their faces. But Jesus also knew the hardness of their hearts. And Jesus is able to look into our hearts. And Jesus turns to the teachers, those who should be able to answer the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and walk. These men should have been able to answer that question. Jesus asks a rhetorical question, it seems, because we don't read of the teacher's answer. They couldn't match his authority. Of course, it is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because there's no way of confirming whether or not it, was, it has happened. How is it verified? It's easy to say, but what was easy to say was achieved at great cost on the cross, on the cross. Jesus said in verse 6, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man, of course, was another way of referring to the Messiah, the Son of God. The Son of God who died and rose again forgives sins. And this is what we believe. This is the truth we affirm. And I trust that we all can confirm that truth for ourselves individually in this service. We are in need of forgiveness. God's grace offers us forgiveness and a secure relationship with God through forgiveness. It's easy to say our sins are forgiven, but there is cost. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And we see fourthly here, the man goes home. The man got up and went home. Amazing. In view of all there, the skeptic, in view of the skeptical teachers, I wonder what they did. Did they slip away and maybe discussed it? Amazingly, and amazingly, in full view of the crowd, he left a stretcher with his companions. He left <coughs> there. <coughs> he left it there in the dirt, and walked up High Street, Capernaum. The crowd was now filled with awe, overwhelmed by what they saw, and they broke into praise. Maybe they sang heartily Psalm 103 that I opened the service with. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. For my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits. For he forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion and satisfies your desires with good things. What praise they must have been able to lift. 
And Jesus tells the man to go home. And he goes home forgiven and healed, set free. This Jesus forgives sins, and on this side of the cross, we trust Jesus. We are set free. Our sins are forgiven as we turn to Jesus through faith, that he has taken our sin upon himself on the cross. He has taken our sin and cast them away. So we must repent, turn our back on them, and we are healed. There is a deep healing. The stain is washed away. The guilt is quashed. The cost is paid on the cross. And the cost for us is to take up the cross and follow Jesus. To go home. To go home. The man went home. And our home is where our family is. In a strange way, our home is where our workplace is. Our home is where we meet with people or where we do things privately and alone, where we deal <coughs> with conflicts and differences with people. To witness, our home is to witness to our forgiveness. You see, it is where we exercise forgiveness too. And so we can sing, as we did in our first hymn today. And as he stands, and as Christ stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I trust, as you're here today, you have that living relationship with Christ. Your sins are forgiven. I trust that you can say, the curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Let us pray. <clears throat>